0: Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Tell me if you've heard this joke before. Three college football fans die. Ah, A Georgia Bulldog fan, Florida Gators fan, and probably an Alabama fan. <laughs> they arrive at the pearly gates. Who do they meet? Peter. They meet St. Peter. Now, I have not done a scientific study, and I'm actually not that good at jokes. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say I, I don't know what, a third, 40%? How many jokes involve individuals ending up at the pearly gates with St. Peter? A lot of them. They're all over the place, and I don't know if you've ever thought about. Um, it's a little strange. Like, where in the world do we get this idea to even have this background to tell these jokes that we all understand about Peter being at the pearly gates? I mean, what in the world is he doing? Is he the doorman? Is he the bouncer? Maybe the janitor, I mean, it says he has keys. I always think of janitors have that big, you know, ring of keys. I want to look a little bit at uh, Peter's role here in Matthew 16 and what might be going on with Peter, but more importantly, what we can learn about the Lord Jesus and the church and the mission that God has for his church uh, from this passage. I will say that uh, verse 18 Um, And I don't know, verses 18 and 19, we're going to spend a little time there, not a ton, but maybe more has been written about these two verses within 2,000 years of church history than anything else. What do we do with Peter? What do we do with his office? What in the world is going on with these keys? And I'm reminded as we come to something like this, which is a controversial passage, where brothers and sisters disagree that the scriptures were not given to provoke controversy or confusion. 2 Timothy 3 tells us all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So we'll we'll talk about some of the controversy here, uh, but I don't want us to camp out there. I want to see what God has for us in this passage um, that would help train us in righteousness, that would show us, Uh, Something about Jesus and the church and the mission he has for us. Um, One of the things I do love about this passage is there are questions and answers all over the place. Um, There's questions and answers. And my hope this morning is that we would see the right question that this passage is asking, the right answer to that question, and a way to apply it. The way they were called to apply it then and how we are called to apply it even now. So Matthew uh, 16, we see just in the first two verses um, the crux of the issue, the right question that they're asking. Verse 13 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's an interesting setup here. Um, Just to give you a little context before we get to this key question, um, in Matthew 15, Um, we start to see this back and forth where Jesus and his disciples are bouncing between two places. Um, One is the Galilee region, that region around the Sea of Galilee. And if you see Jesus there, it's incredible. He's teaching. Crowds are coming to him. He is healing all kinds of people. And then the religious leaders are coming and asking questions. Who are you? What are we to make of you? Hey, can you do really cool stuff? We'd like to see it. And between that region and the Galilee, we see that Jesus frequently is escaping into a different place, and it's an unexpected place. He goes north time and time again. Um, And what's north of Galilee are Gentiles. And what's north of Galilee is kind of a beach resort area. And what's north of Galilee is Caesarea Philippi, which is this uh, huge religious commercial center for idolatry in the first century. We'll get into this in a little bit, but it's just interesting to see that you've got this juxtaposition. Galilee, where all these miracles and things are happening, Jesus is doing his work, but they don't get it. People are asking, who are you? Would you show us the sign? And he's like, did you see what just happened? Like, how much more do I need to do? And then you have these regions where the Gentiles are, these completely unlikely people to be interested in the Jewish Messiah. And we start to see people there, the least likely responding to Jesus well. We had the Canaanite woman who responded to Jesus well. And Jesus said, oh, look at your faith. And then here, we're going up to Caesarea Philippi, and something's going to happen to clarify the identity of Jesus. And I think it's fascinating that it happens here at Caesarea Philippi. Um, And let me tell you why. Um, When we think about, you know, the Gentiles and the people of Israel, we even had some passages from Romans 11 we've been in the last few weeks. It feels like shaky ground, remote from our life and our experience. We're, we're not used to thinking in those terms. Um, and it's not an exact parallel, but I, I kind of, when I'm in those passages, like, okay, what's it like to be the faithful, good people of God? <laughs> and then to see those who seem far and least likely and running the other way. Because that's what the Gentiles were viewed as. I mean, they, they were the heart of idolatry and unrighteousness. You would think if Jesus was going to clarify his identity, he would go where? The temple in Jerusalem. That's how you and I would probably write. If we were writing the script on this, that might be how we would write the story. Instead, he goes to Caesarea Philippi. And let me tell you a little bit about this place. Because I think there's times when we read the scriptures, there are these buzzwords that would have jumped out to the audience that we just don't have that same background. So when you hear Caesarea Philippi, I don't know what goes through your mind, but it might be, okay, city. (laughs) Sounds kind of Greco-Roman. All right, no big deal, right? Maybe you've seen it on a map. You're like, okay, that's about 15, 16 miles um, north, a little bit northwest of Galilee, so it's pretty close. Let me tell you a little bit about this city and what happened there And I think it's going to give you some context for this conversation, this important conversation between Jesus and Peter. Um, This is a Greco-Roman city. You've got Caesar, uh, Caesarea, and you've got Philippi. So those who uh, Philip wanted to kind of add his name, connect his glory to that of Caesar. Um, This region uh, got built up and and was kind of a a foothold was put there by Alexander the Great. And what we would know today is the Golan Heights. Um, it's a border area. Like if you go there right now, it's a border area. Um, a couple of folks are here. We were there last November and there are tanks <laughs> and there are barbed wire and there are walls. And you've probably read about the Golan Heights. Um, you've heard of that, where Lebanon and uh, Israel are. Well, this particular place, Caesarea Philippi, um, is, it's in the Golan Heights. So it's high. There's a high mountain Um, It's rocky. And what Caesarea Philippi was famous for was this place of worship. And this was not a place where the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were worshipped. This was one of the main headquarters of idolatry and pagan worship in the first century. Um, And there would be uh, three or four different deities uh, were honored there, but especially Caesar uh, would be revered there. Um, the god Pan, do you know Pan? He's like the weird little goat human. I mean, we, we think about a goat human and we're like, oh, Mr. Tumness in Narnia, so sweet. <laughs> no, this is like Mr. Mischief. He's, he's, he's like the god of parties, essentially. Um, and part of what he does as the god of parties is he brings the harvest. And so there's a sense of where Caesar is honored there. So government and power. Pan is honored there. In other words, sensuality and provision. Um, and then there's all these random. There's like a temple to the goats. There, I mean, just weird stuff there. Um, and like pretty like not PG, not even PG thirteen rated kind of stuff going on of how this worship would take place. Um, furthermore, they had built uh, these temples on the side of the mountain there. Um, And it's this rocky place. And what's really interesting for our passage is that where the Temple of Pan was, there was an entrance and it went into this rock, huge cave in the mountain. Um, And guess what they called it? The Gate of Hell. Um, And at the time, it had water that had pulled up. um, And there was water that had come through and filled this little ravine area. Um, And what's interesting is what they would do here at that temple is they would make sacrifices, Um, animals, other things. They would throw that into the water. The water would turn red. Um, And essentially one of two things could happen depending on the pressure and what was going on. Either the, the sacrifice would get sucked underneath and disappear. And in that case, they would say, this has gone into the underworld and our sacrifice has now been accepted. Or it would actually get pushed back. And they would say, hey, we got to do more sacrifice uh, because that was completely um, unacceptable. And so just as you hear that, um, do you think this is a place for an important religious conversation with a Jewish rabbi and his followers? This heartbeat of idolatry and sensuality and things that we can't even talk about in church. Um, this is a dark place. Um, like I said, we were there in November. Like you, it's still a little funky. Like you know, your your hair stands up on your arms. You're like a lot of bad stuff's gone down here. This is not great. What in the world is Jesus doing there? Why would he take his disciples there? And what's he trying to teach them? Um, that's what I want to talk about because you notice what happens. He goes there, and he starts gathering information. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's been doing all this ministry in the Galilee region. Uh, he's been seeing people. Some of them seem to have faith. Most of them don't. They, they're asking for signs. They're asking for more teaching. Um, they're impressed by the miracles, but maybe not the person. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Um, it's a good question. It, it's, it's the right question that we should be asking. Who is this guy? And he's saying, do, do the people get it? Do, do they understand? Do they understand what is happening right before their eyes? And it appears like, well, not quite. Um, verse 14, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, there's a recognition that God is somehow at work in and through this individual. But they don't get the full picture. He's teaching in a way that only the prophets have taught, but even maybe something more. He's doing works that you would have seen the prophets do, um, but more. So when they say that maybe John the Baptist, maybe Jeremiah, one of the prophets, um, they're, they're stumbling towards the right answer, but they're not there. Um, it's not wrong, but it's not fully right either. We would say we see Jesus as prophet, priest, and king revealed in the scriptures. Um, Matthew Henry, who's a a pastor in the 1800s, said it is possible for men to have good thoughts of Christ and yet not the right ones. A high opinion of him and yet not high enough. Um, You know, I've been doing pastoral ministry now since I, I guess... 2004, five, like almost 20 years. Um, And most folks I encounter, they've got a a bit of faith. But I see this all the time, where people have a high view of Jesus or a high view of God, but not high enough. They're still learning, and there's still a a gap there. And even if you think about the people you know who become Christians— you don't usually see someone go from being completely unchurched or an atheist to, okay, now we're saying the Nicene Creed in church. There's usually a process. There's steps along the way. Um, C.S. Lewis, one of the most famous converts of the last century, talks about uh, before he became a Christian, he moved from atheism to theism. I don't think there's a God. I, I think there might be. And then later moved into the specificity of Christianity. Um, Usually you see that, and I think that's all that's happening here, is these folks are going, okay, something's happening with this guy, but they haven't landed on the specificity. And I don't want to blame them too much, because Jesus is keeping a little bit of a secret. I mean, even here at the end, he's like, hey, don't tell anybody yet. Which I think he just, essentially, he is, uh, (laughs) all the hopes and expectations and dreams they had for the Messiah. Jesus fulfills, but not necessarily in the way that they thought he would. And so before they just assume that they know what he's about because he's the Messiah, he wants to wait until his death and resurrection. So that you see him as a suffering Messiah and a risen and victory Messiah, not just one teaching and doing these miracles. And so that's kind of the broader crowd. Um, and there's a lot of time in church. It's really good to ask, like, "Hey, what does the culture think of Jesus? What do non-believers think of Jesus?" There's whole survey groups. That's what they like make their money doing, and they're they're good to read. It's nice to know where, where the where the consensus would be. Um, here, if everyone thinks he's a prophet, well, good. We know where to start. Let's let's show how he's more than that. But what the Lord is usually more interested in is, well, what about us? it's really easy to look at those who are far from God and go, here's what's wrong with their faith. He goes, what about you? He asks his disciples, that's fine. Who do you say that I am? You who have been walking closely, you who are in a better position to get this than anybody else, who do you say that I am? And that's where we see Peter's answer. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He has the right answer to the right question. And by the way, we probably should just pause for a moment of appreciation. Peter got an answer right. Um, <laughs> I just have this image of Peter as a child at fisherman school and every time the teacher asked a question he's just ooh 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 and whatever comes out of his mouth you're just like anybody else <laughs> or i just see him there with his hand up and them going could we let somebody else have a turn and this is peter he's impetuous he he, he always speaks before he thinks or acts before he thinks that's his Uh, and that's part of why we love him, because we can identify with Peter. And Peter gets the answer right. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, That's the crux of the issue. Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he was? Uh, Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ? And remember, Christ is not his last name. Um, this is his title, his office. He's the anointed one. He's the one through whom the father is fulfilling all the promises he had ever made to his people, the Messiah. That's who this is. This is Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, there's no more important question we can ask or answer than who do you think he is? Who do you think this man is, um, I saw a great reflection on this from the world's foremost theologian of the 20th century, Bono. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> there's an interview Bono gave, and they're asking him, and his faith is always, I think, really deep and interesting and slippery because he doesn't want to be boxed in um, by kind of cultural norms of the church and Christianity. That's okay, I love Bono. Um, and uh, by the way, if you're in college, Bono is this musician. <laughs> he plays the Super Bowl on occasion. <laughs> um, us old people think he's a big deal, and we think he's still relevant. I know he's not, but uh, Bono. Um, <laughs> says, I think a defining question for a Christian is, who was Christ? And I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher, because he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the son of God. And then this is Bono. So he either, in my view, was the son of God or he was nuts. Bono says, forget rock and roll messianic complexes. I'm like, Bono, nobody brought that up but you. (laughs) Hold on. He goes, no, this is like Charles Manson type delirium. And then here's his argument. It's interesting. He says, I find it hard to accept that millions and millions of lives, half the earth, for 2,000 years have been touched and have had their lives influenced and inspired and transformed by some nutter. It's like it doesn't hold up just to that historical probability. Um, That is the great theologian Bono. Echoing the great theologian, Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And why does Peter get this answer right? Well, Jesus, I mean, it's a little bit, he's finally gotten a right answer. Peter's like, do I get a gold star? And Jesus says, blessed are you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. <laughs> you didn't study hard enough. You didn't think it through. You weren't actually that smart, Peter. Peter. God Almighty himself had to give you the answer. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. It's interesting. And then following that confession, uh, look at what happens here. Um, We have this uh, announcement by Jesus where he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, and my Bible has a footnote that lets me know the word for rock and Peter, there's a play on words happening. This is Rocky. He gives him a nickname, essentially. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell, which they can see. in the, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom on heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And ink has been spilled. <laughs> on what in the world does this mean? And what do we think of Peter? And what do we think of bishops? And what do we think of popes? And how does God lead his church? Um, And that's all well and good, and we need to have those discussions. But I sometimes wonder if we get distracted by those questions so that we don't have to deal with this confession and this question, who do you say that I am? It's a lot easier to argue about the pope than to reckon with, this is the son of the living God. And oh my goodness, who am I in light of this person? It's it's a lot easier to engage in some of the speculation. Um, The bedrock issue here, and I use bedrock, is not Peter, it's his confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, One scholar uh, reflecting on this, Frederick Dale Bruner, says the Christian church is well is healthy when she is as decisive and emphatic as Peter about this. And she is sick when she equivocates. We can have lots of secondary issues. We can have ambiguity. We can have within the family of faith debate, but not on Jesus is Lord. You are the son of the living God. Um, And sometimes I think we can emphasize the differences we have between parts of the church and go, hey, we're united on this key, huge bedrock thing. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the son of the living God. He's the one that God is at work in and through in a remarkable way. All right, should we talk about this keys of the kingdom thing a little bit? Did everyone have enough coffee? (laughs) Um, This is where, again, I mentioned more ink has been spilled. It's it's hashing this stuff out. Um, And I would say historically what you've seen is two main uh, lines of interpretation in the church. And if you know anything about Anglicans, we don't like uh, dichotomous choices, so we're going to try to blend something in the middle. That's how Anglicans do things. And so one of the lines of interpretation has said, we really want to pay attention to this person, Peter and his office and his leadership and those who come after him. And that's all well and good. Um, And they're going to emphasize, man, there is this historical continuity going back 2,000 years where Peter as a leader said, now you're a leader and you're a leader. It's this almost relay race. Um, And like, that's good. (laughs) Like my, my, uh, the guy who ordained me, um, Archbishop Bob Duncan, He's got a chart, and it shows this little relay race going back to Peter, um, of folks who have laid hands on him. And so there is a historical continuity that is huge and important. And then there's this whole other strand who has said, hey, let's not worry about the historical continuity. Let's just look at the content of faith. Is Jesus Christ Lord? Are we confessing that? Uh, and so they've said, we don't need to worry about um, bishops or leaders or historical continuity. We just need that faith. And we can be untethered and have it here and now. Um, and my read is just, man, why would you take those things apart? Why would we separate the way God uh, leads his church through leaders with the key confession of faith? Now, if, you, if you're going to push me, if I have to pick one of those, I'm going to lean into the confession because I'm that much of an evangelical at heart. <laughs> Jesus Christ is Lord. Like, we can argue about the other stuff. That is key. But the other is not unimportant. The thing about how God leads his church, how God has led his church, because godly leadership is incredibly important. The New Testament tells us that God gives leaders to the church for a purpose. Um, and I even think a good way to organize that maybe is the office of Bishop. Like, that's part of how I'm an Anglican, is to say, hey, bishops are are a way God leads his church. Um, I would say they're beneficial for the life and health of the church. Um, When I was ordained, I had to sign this scary document. It's called an oath of canonical obedience. And what it says is that I will obey the bishop and all of his successors, um, in any matter as long as it's legal. Do you realize what that means? The bishop could make me be an Alabama fan. (laughs) And I'm like, all right. Um, There are like really healthy chains of command with that that help the church do uh, her work and to do it well. I think that this order of bishop and uh, presbyter and deacon and the priesthood of all believers, the laity, all indwelled by the Spirit working together is a healthy church. And I also think that any of those can become a distraction in and of themselves when we get too focused on them versus focused on Jesus and on this confession and on this mission that he gives. Um, when I read this, you know, one, there's a, there's a level of honor to Peter here that's fantastic. And Jesus like renames him, gives him a nickname. I'm going to build my church on you. Here's the keys of the kingdom, which is how all those jokes about Peter at the pearly gates come in. I think something else is happening. I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but a lot's happening with Peter. What I don't think is happening, I just want to be clear on this. He is not calling Peter into a different category of follower or of Christian or a believer. I, I don't know. Sometimes I think we, we can have in our culture a view that clergy are like a super category or a different category. Um, and it's not, it's just a different office that God calls leaders into uh, for a purpose and for a reason. Um, and I can support that because in the very next verses, um, Peter, whatever you think happens here, Peter um, gets completely owned and rebuked by Jesus who says, get behind me, Satan. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> tells me, like, even the best godly leaders are not perfect. No, the only perfect leader is Jesus. And we follow him, and we're grateful when he gives us leaders that help us do that. But we don't get distracted in, in the meantime. Um, here's where I think the keys of the kingdom thing really comes in. Let me just tell you, and this is, uh, this is uh, Daniel's interesting insight. So take that for what it is. Um, If you read the book of Acts and you read it through, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. And it could really be called the Acts of Peter and Paul. Like you could make that claim. There's enough that's happening between those two apostles. You could call it the Acts of Peter and Paul. And when I think about the keys of the kingdom, what I see is that Peter is the one in the book of Acts that is always... Welcoming the new person in and the new group in. I mean, think about it. Early in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, they, get this, they hear this rumor, hey, there's Samaritans who are believing in the Messiah. They're like, well, that doesn't seem right. Samaritans don't seek after God in the right way, at the right place, in the right manner. And so Peter goes to check on them. And lo and behold, the spirit falls. He's like, oh, the spirit's even at work here. Let's welcome you in. Uh, to the church. A little bit later, you've got Cornelius, the centurion, this Roman soldier. That's definitely not someone who should be following um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're there to take over. But Peter has this vision, and then he's sent to this man. And he welcomes in this centurion, this unlikely far-from-God leader. And then a little bit later, you hear there's this man named uh, Paul who's been going around killing and imprisoning Christians. But he's come to faith. And so Barnabas connects him with Peter who welcomes him in amongst the apostles. Peter, when I think of the keys, I'm like, how? And it's not like, man, you control whether my sins get forgiven or not or whether I get into heaven or not. No, you're the guy saying, hey, everybody in. He's he's leading God's people in mission and welcoming those who are far from God and the least likely to be following him. That's Peter at his best. That's Peter as an apostle. That's Peter um, who we can be excited about what he's done because he's not leading people to himself. He's leading people to Jesus as the rock. And so one last thing, because I see that our children are in the narthex. Hey, kids. Yeah, still going here. Um, again, a lot has been written on this, so we've got to have a little more time. But here's my intriguing uh, idea. Again, so much has been written about Peter, Bishop, Pope, all this stuff, but I'm going like, why in the world does this take place here at Caesarea Philippi with these idols and this wickedness and this terrible behavior? I think there's part of what Jesus is trying to make sure they understand is that these people who they see doing these terrible things are not out of his reach. In fact, he's gone out of his way to go to where they are, not to, not to engage in sin, but because he doesn't see them as the enemy. What he sees usually are people who are misguided. They are seeking things with all their heart that won't satisfy They have set their hearts and minds on lesser loves. Maybe they're worshiping Caesar and they're worshiping government and power. Maybe they're worshiping Pan, sensuality, and prosperity. I don't know what it is, Um, but Jesus will say, hey, they're seeking, and they're seeking this in the wrong place, but I'm seeking them. (laughs) And I am calling you, church, to think about how do you go and intersect them with this message and how do you usher them in like Peter ushered everybody in? How can you be that agent of reconciliation? How can you help hold the keys and say, hey, come on in. We're so glad to have you. We've been waiting for you. The Lord has been seeking you. Do you know what I did? Yeah, it's okay. Come in. And in my, just as I think about it, man, in some ways, it's so much more helpful there that the idolatry is just out in the open. Like there's no mystery about it. They're not buttoned up trying to hide anything. It's just, hey, here's what we're worshiping. Why? Well, it's super fun. (laughs) This is where we think we can find meaning and significance and purpose. This is how we can get through life. Um, For us, we've got bigger questions, and that's, you know, for another day. But how do we, you know, no one here is worshiping Caesar and Pan openly. But those things, government, power, provision, prosperity, just pleasure, man, we worship all those same things. um, Because we're really not that complex as humans. (laughs) The needs we have are the needs they had the ways we pursue it might have a little more technology or sophistication. But the question is to go, not how do we see all these things are bad, but how do we think through people who are pursuing things they think will satisfy? How in the world can we ask God to help us be part of his mission to bring them to himself? Now, here's the last thing I'll say, and we'll finish up. Um, That's a daunting task. That's a daunting idea. And the one thing I just want to remind you that's said here um, is that Jesus doesn't say, you are Peter, now go build my church. It's not up to Peter here. It's not his responsibility. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be responsive to the Lord, but he's called to build his church. The fruit, that's up to him. When things go well, when things don't go well, we are called to be faithful and then trust that the Lord knows exactly what he is up to. And then here's the last thing. What's fascinating is that all of these disciples that are gathered around Jesus accessory of Philippi, this place of idolatry and Gentiles and sin, you know what they do? They go out into all the known world to terrible places of idolatry and sin and wickedness and they bear witness to Jesus and many of them are slain for it. And They don't return violence for violence. They wonder prayerfully, Lord, how can you be at work in this? There's a curiosity and wonder as they engage in mission together and they go knowing that Jesus will build his church, and they, know, no, they go knowing that Jesus goes with them in that task, and he goes with us as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Um, if you'll go ahead and stand, can Text will come. But just like Peter gave his good and true confession, uh, we now get to confess our faith together uh, using the words of the Nicene Creed.